We're going to wander through the word today. So um, as I begin, just let me encourage you. We're not only going to look at some verses in Revelation chapter two and three, but we're also going to look at first John chapter five, a couple of verses in there. We're going to look at John 16, 33, and we're going to look at second Corinthians two fourteen. So I'll tell you those verses again. It's just in a minute, we're going to turn to first John chapter five, and it takes a little while, especially if you have a Bible that's very thin, the pages are very thin. It takes a while to, to get there. So you might want to go ahead and turn there. Um, every, every now and then when, when, uh, all of our kids were young, we would go out to a restaurant or be at occasion where there are a lot of people and sort of to entertain our kids, we'd play a game. It was sort of like the game I Spy, you know, where you're with someone, you go, I spy something blue. And then you have to guess, well, is it this shirt or is it this wall or is it this picture or is it the sky? Well, this was sort of an I Spy people game. And the way it would work is that we would go, say, into a restaurant and we'd sit down. And while we're waiting for the food, I would turn to our kids and I would say, I I see so-and-so here. Like I would say, hey, Bill Clinton is eating in this restaurant. And the kids would look around and then go, yeah, he looks like Bill Clinton. Or I'd throw him a curve. I would say, you know what? A famous ex-baseball player just walked into the restaurant and they would have to find who I'm talking about and say who the famous ex-ball player was. And so it was a great game where we would, uh, we would find people that would look a certain way. We all look like somebody. Who do you look like? If you played the game... Who do you look like? If the game was played on you, who would people say that you look like? And since I've been here, there's actually a couple of people who have sworn that I look like one of two people. The first one that they say that I look like is this guy, R.C. Sproul. I don't know if you know him. He's one of the better teachers in the world today, but that's who they say I look like. I hope they're wrong. (laughs) Please be wrong. And that's one. And the other person that somebody here swears that I look like is this guy. (laughs) I think he's just jealous. I never knew I was so good looking. Who do you look like? Now, as a believer, as a child of God, let me ask you that question. If you are a professing Christian, you know, the Bible uses a lot of terms to, to give us a picture of what believers look like. We're called what? Children of God. Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, members of God's family, Christian, a disciple, saints, followers of the way. And what I want to do for the next several minutes is talk about a term that is used in the Bible to describe believers. And the word is the phrase, one who overcomes, an overcomer, a conqueror, one who overcomes. You know, we, we love the story of of overcoming, don't we? Boy, it makes for great movies. You know, remember the movie We Are Marshall where the, the football team was killed in a tragic plane crash and the stories about how they rebuilt and the city came together and the community and, and reestablished their football team against great odds? Or maybe you remember the movie Pursuit of Happiness 
where uh, uh, Chris Gardner uh, was, uh, ha- had made a bad investment and he was down on his luck and he had applied for an internship at Dean Witter and the stories about how he and his son had to go from homeless shelters and sleep out on the streets uh, while he was studying to try to get this internship in the dim light of a halfway house and, and, and sleeping on a subway bathroom floor. And against all odds, uh, he overcame the hardship and he, he got the internship and went on to become a millionaire and we, he overcame and he's an inspiration. Or a couple of weeks ago, a 21-year-old in the sports world became famous uh, for, for uh, overcoming a great golf course and, and other wonderful golfers and became the master's champion. And if you ask him, he will say that's nothing compared to what his 14-year-old sister, Ellie, who battles with autism, has to overcome just to live a normal day. And he will tell you that she's his inspiration because of what she has to overcome, that she's the one who is the champion, overcomers. And the Bible is rich with the idea of overcoming. You just have to go to King David. You know, here's the little shepherd boy with a heart for God and is pretty good with a sling. And what did he do? He overcame the giant Goliath who was feared by the entire army of Israel. He is an overcomer, a conqueror. And that word is used 28 times in the New Testament. Overcome is used 26 times by the apostle John and slightly over half are used in the book of Revelation. Now let's unpack what this word means a little bit and see how it relates and applies to us. First John chapter five, verses four and five says this, says for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is he that overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Who are the overcomers? Believers. And then in John 16, 33, Jesus is speaking and we read this. These things I've spoken to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. So what we're saying so far is this. If you believe that Jesus is the son of God, then you are an overcomer. By virtue of the overcomer, Jesus Christ. And I guess my rationale for even thinking about this is because in the last, oh, I don't know, probably over a year when I've had the opportunity to stand in this pulpit, we've talked about uh, Revelation 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. And as I went through all those letters, each time I left something that was pretty important out. If you remember those letters, those letters are written to those particular churches and to the church at large by the chief overcomer, Jesus Christ. And they're written to those who are in the midst of overcoming. Remember the letter in Revelation 2, uh, 7 particularly, the letter to the Ephesians? He says, to the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. In other words, what he's saying is to believers, you will have the opportunity to live lasting, fulfilling, rich, eternal life because it's promised by Jesus to all believers. 
or Smyrna, to the one who overcomes, you will not be hurt by the second death. That's the church which was small and with little power, but they were doing well and they're hanging in there. And, and Jesus even said to them, you know, you, you, some of you are probably going to lose your life because of your faith, but don't worry, you are an overcomer. You might die the first death, but you will in no way ever die the second death. You will spend eternity with me. Because death, for the one who overcomes, leads to eternal life. Or Pergamum, or Thyatira, or Sardis, or Philadelphia. If you read how to the one who overcomes, you'll find that they are promised purity, and security, and authority, and peace. Because they overcome because they believe. And even Laodicea, remember that church? Remember Laodicea was neither hot nor cold. And, and Jesus said, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth because of their self-sufficiency and because of the things that they were doing. Uh, he says to the one who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Even these get your act together, be who you are and receive these promises that are guaranteed by the one who overcomes. That's the position of a believer. Now, it's interesting, the Greek word that's used for overcome, and if you read your translation of the Bible uh, in Revelation, it might say to him who conquers. But the Greek word is a word that you're familiar with. Put on your tennis shoes. Lace them up so that you can play basketball or your cross trainer shoes. Because the word for overcome is the word Nike, the word Nike, it means victory. It describes an overwhelming victory in battle. You know, this past week, I stayed up late and watched two NBA basketball games, same teams, the Spurs and the Clippers. The first game that I stayed up late and watched, the Spurs eked out an overtime victory and won the game. They just barely managed to win it. And then the other night, they played again, and the Spurs killed the Clippers. The game was over in the third quarter. The, the outcome was never in doubt. They destroyed them. It was a total and decisive victory. That's the idea behind this word, Nike. Do you see how that relates to us? We don't overcome by just going through the church motions, trying to eke out some semblance of religion, hoping we can just squeak out a victory barely in overtime. But we overcome by faith in the overcomer, Jesus Christ. And if you have said, Jesus, I agree with who you are and what you have done. And I apply what you have done for my sin. I believe. Then you are one who overcomes. That's the picture of a believer. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the son of God. Here's a, here's a little tidbit to reinforce the fact. You remember in John chapter three, there was a fellow who came to Jesus at night, wanted to ask him a question, didn't want to come in the day. So he, he got a hold of Jesus in the evening and he said, you know, I, I need to know something, Jesus. Are you, are you from God? Are you uh, uh, part of the kingdom? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus responded to the fellow. Remember what he said? He said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. You remember the guy's name? Nica 
Demas. Nike Demas. The word Nike means victory. The word Demos is for a word from which we get demography. It's people. So the one who was coming to him that Jesus responded by saying, you must be born again. His name literally means people of victory. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. But you might be saying, I got to be honest. You might be saying, Randy, you're telling me that Another name for a Christian is one who overcomes and, and that really that's who we are. But I got to tell you, I know some good folks who are Christians and I know that they're going through things that, that are tough. I mean, they're climbing that mountain and they don't see any way to the top of it. And they're struggling to maintain their faith in the midst of some really difficult, hard things. And you know what? They don't seem like an overcomer to me. And I'll tell you something else. A lot of days I don't feel very much like an overcomer. I'm, I don't feel like I'm conquering anything. I mean, the Bible says, do not covet. And yet I find myself coveting. Uh, the Bible uh, says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. And you know, I find myself saying things that I shouldn't say. And I miss opportunities. And I think things I think things that if somehow they could be put up on these new video screens, I would be run out, just, not just run out of church, I'd be run out of town. I'm selfish. And I don't always experience this idea of being an overcomer. And I know that. I've been writing in journals since I was in college and I've, every now and then I will look over these journals and I can take a journal from 20 years ago and see what I had written down in it, the things that I was struggling with and compare it to my journals of today and they're the same thing. And I'm going, where's the growth? Where's the victory? It seems like you take two steps forward and then all of a sudden you take two steps back. Where's this overwhelming victory that's talked about in these passages? What hinders us from experiencing that? And I'm sure there's a number of reasons. You know, one reason might just be that we're, that we're climbing that mountain and we're in the midst of it and the, the chapter isn't finished yet and that's always true. But I think when we look at these letters in the book of Revelation, we can find two hindrances that these churches who were seeking to overcome were having to deal with. And the first one, is compromise. If you look at the church in Ephesus, what do they say about them? You know, they had, what happened is they had elevated their love for doctrine over their love for people. And as a result, it had compromised their witness. Or Pergamum and Thyatira, they had allowed false teaching from within and from without they get them off track. It was a false teaching that was saying, look, you can keep your job. You can join this trade guild and you can go to all their festivities and worship all of their idols and still maintain your faith. Compromise. Or the church in Sardis that had a reputation of being alive but was dead. You know, and, and John Otley talked about how those in Romans 7 passed through the tribulation. They had overcome and they were given white garments to wear. And it says of the church in Sardis, you have soiled your garments. In other words, your pure white garments have been soiled by compromise to the point where they had lost their spiritual vitality. In Laodicea, they had compromised. 
That's one of the hindrances to overcome it. I'll give an example. Sunday school story, you know, Exodus 32. The story of Egypt in the whole book of Exodus where they were being uh, slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And finally, you know the story that through circumstances and uh, the plagues and, and Moses and Pharaoh and all of that, that finally they were allowed to leave by Pharaoh. And so the Lord directed them out and he had done miracles with them and he brought them to the Red Sea, he parted the Red Sea, they crossed the Red Sea. And then the Egyptian army who had pursued after them was destroyed by the Lord. And then he, he, he was with them, his presence in, in, in a, a cloud and in fire, and he, and he fed them and he took care of them. And then he called Moses to tell the people that have everybody gather around Mount Sinai and wait at the base so that Moses and his, his assistant Joshua could go up the mountain and Moses could head to the top so that he could receive instructions from the Lord that talk about the the way that they should behave as God's covenant people, their special identity, the Ten Commandments, the rules for worship, the restrictions, and the, and the morality of their life. And he was there, and he was gone for a while. And you remember what happened? The people said, where is this fellow Moses? We don't know what's happened to him. Hey, Aaron, why don't you make us uh, a God that would be with us? Make us some God so that we can we can have them go before us. And so what did Aaron do? He said, well, give me all your gold jewelry. Took their gold jewelry and he fashioned a golden calf. Now get what's going on here. The people asked for gods who would go before them. And Aaron made a, a, a golden calf and the people cried out when they saw it. These are the gods who brought us out of Egypt. And so in response, Aaron built an altar and he said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And the people got to partying and on and on. Was it a feast to the Lord or was it worshiping the idols that they had made? Nobody knew. So the Lord said, you better go down there, Moses, and see what's going on. These people are stiff-necked. And so Moses turns around to go down there, and Joshua's with him. And Joshua says, I hear, I hear a cry. I hear, a, I hear shouting. I hear um, a, 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 a cry of war. And Moses said, they are not shouting for victory, nor are they crying for defeat. They're just singing. They weren't overcoming they weren't being overcome. They were just compromised by the idols that they had made, trying to have a festival for the Lord and at the same time worshiping their idols. You know, John Calvin said that our hearts are idol factories, and that can come in many shapes and many forms. They don't even have to be material things. They can be attitudes or they can, they can be beliefs. And it could be that we're not experiencing this idea of overcoming because we've allowed certain idols to compromise and to rob us of our spiritual vitality. Let me encourage you to ask yourself a simple and honest question from time to time. It's this. Does the source of my pleasure does the motive of my desire please the Lord? 
Does the source of my pleasure give pleasure to the Lord? Is the motive of my desire something that causes me to delight in him? Compromise can hinder our walks in being this overcomer that he wants us to be. That's one. The second one, I think, is conflict. We see in these, these, uh, these letters, we see that some of these churches were undergoing conflict, and many of us don't have a handle on how to deal with conflict. Smyrna was a great little church, but they were being assaulted and persecuted from without to the point of death. How do you handle that? That's conflict. Philadelphia, the church there, there was the synagogue of Satan creating conflict for the church. And by understanding that conflict, as, as, as simple or as confusing, and it can be confusing, or as complex or as beyond our ability to figure out whether it's with people, whether it's with circumstances, whether it's with attitudes or weaknesses that we have, whether it's with temptation, whatever shape, shape it takes, conflict is always an opportunity to glorify God. Conflict, however it looks, is an opportunity to glorify God. I meet with a person regularly uh, who's been going through great conflict. He's struggling with an addiction, and he seems to be doing better. He finally seems like he's actually overcoming. And so I was talking with him the other day, and I said, I said, what's different? What's different that's making you able to, to sort of get on top of this addiction that you're suffering with? And he's a believer, but he still falls prey to this temptation. And so I ask him, and he says, well, you know, every program that I've enrolled in that's tried to help me always emphasizes this. This will help you. This will make you better. Even every Christian program has that slant. This will help you. This will set you free. This will make you a better Christian. You overcome. You gain the victory over this addiction. He said, but it never worked. Then he came across a program that was different. And then we look at it, and I just looked at the introduction to the program. And it started out by saying, hey, you need to understand that this isn't about you. That the success, or whatever you want to call it, from your addiction is not about your victory. And don't enroll in this program if you're in it only to help yourself. You see, if you're a Christian, then you are not the end and the aim of your life. Because the aim and end of your life is to glorify God. So the goal of this program is not about you. It is about God and bringing him the credit, giving him the honor. You do it to please him. You know, he said, I never thought about that. And it changed my entire perspective. Now, you know, every conflict, well, some conflicts are difficult to solve. I mean, some, they're, they're, they're unsolvable even. Divorce. Divorce can change a life and it may never get to where it was or where it, it, you, you would want it to be. Or uh, uh, disobedience. Circumstances happen that are beyond our control. But as far as ourselves, whatever it is, 
no matter how difficult and impossible it might seem, somewhere in that conflict, there's an opportunity to believe God and to glorify him. Maybe it's an opportunity if you're in conflict with another person, for instance, to get the the log out of your eye and to refocus. Or maybe you're in a conflict where there's a chance you might could return evil for good or to seek patience or in the midst of being wrong and accused unjustly or whatever case it might be, it might be an opportunity to meditate on the one who was wronged for us, our overcomer. Conflict is always an opportunity to figure out how to glorify God. And that's not easy. It's easier said than done. But these letters are written to the church. They're giving us a picture of the church. They were not alone, and we're not alone. It's an opportunity to give the honor and the credit to God. So here's the last thing. How can I live as one who overcomes? Let me invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians uh, 2.14, and we're going to read that in a minute. Now, now I want you to think about something while you're turning. You hear preachers talking frequently about victory. They say, victory is yours. They say, your problem is you just need to claim the victory, and it'll already be yours. And you know what? That's well-meaning, but it can be misleading. And this may not seem like a major point, but I want you to think about it. This conquering, overwhelming victory that we desire when we're in trials, or however it manifests itself, this victory isn't ours. This victory belongs to Jesus Christ, and we are his. He is the one who makes good on his promises. He is the one with the conquering power and the guarding grace. And you see, this means that the chief overcomer has a stake in our lives and the burden is on his shoulders. And overcoming isn't so much about our victory as it is about his victory. So how do we do it? How do I get out from under this mess that I've made? How do I get on top of things? How can I deal with this overwhelming feeling of guilt or shame or failure or whatever the situation might be? Or how can I help someone who sees no way out? 2 Corinthians 2.14. What an interesting passage. Paul is using this to, to explain, even though he shouldn't have to, to validate his ministry to the church in Corinth. And here's what he says. He says, Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. We overcome by allowing Jesus Christ to lead us in triumph. Now, the people in Corinth would know what he's talking about because what he's referring to to is is the, the great Roman triumphal procession. It was a great parade, like a ticker tape parade on steroids, a wonderful celebration on a massive scale that was just reserved for special occasions. It was like this. When a Roman army fought and gained a decisive victory, and there's even rules on how decisive the victory had to be, 
there had to be, first of all, at least 5,000 soldiers killed, enemy soldiers. Then some territory had to be taken. And then the, 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 the victory in the battle had to be so decisive and so overwhelming that the uh, soldiers could come home. There was no more fighting. It was so complete that it put an end to the war. And when that happened, a day was proclaimed to celebrate this triumph. And it was called a triumphal procession. And Rome has gained that victory. So the day would come. And they had a parade route that they always used. And people would line the streets and there'd be flowers there. And the people are shouting and, and waving. And the, the air was filled with the incense. There's burning on all of the altars of all the Roman gods that was, that was along the way. And then the parade would, would begin and all the fat cats and all the dignitaries would lead the way. And next it would be followed by a band and there would be music and there would be trumpets playing. And then the victorious Roman army would, would follow that and they would be carrying their spoils of war and they would be cheered and, and uh, adored. Next would be the conquering hero, the general who had led the decisive victory and he would be dressed in a gold robe and have a laurel crown in a chariot with his family. Then somewhere in the procession behind them would be the defeated king dressed in black. And also behind them would be the officers of the defeated army and the soldiers who had been defeated. And they would be in the procession and they would be mocked and they would be ridiculed and they would actually be on their way either to become slaves or to become gladiators or to be put to death. They had no agenda of their own. They were marching in the procession behind their conqueror in complete surrender. So what's this saying about being one who overcomes? Well, first of all, what it's not saying, now listen real closely. It's not saying that we as believers are part of the conquering, victorious army, the triumphant ones, as if our might and our mettle and our power and our ability to fight is what granted us a place in this victory procession. But what it's saying is this. We are the conquered soldiers being led in complete surrender by our conquering hero, Jesus Christ. And this is what it means. The way to overcome is to live in complete surrender to our conquering hero. That is the overcomer, Jesus Christ. Because you see, if we live and we believe that God does actually lead us in this triumphal procession, and he does, then wherever we go, whatever we go through, whatever in the midst of right now, we are led there in a sense by God. And what we need to do is stay behind the chariot of the conquering king. Because even though we're still in the battle, we know that the victory has been fought and it has been won by the conquering hero, our hero, and that's Jesus Christ. You see, in the Roman triumphal procession, the captives are being led at best to enslavement, and at worst, they're being led to death. But our conquering hero is not our enemy. 
He loves us. And our conquering hero is not leading us to death. He is leading us home. And that's why we can say in Romans 8, 37, know in all these things, whether it's in life or whether it's in death or whether it's present or whether it's what happening in the future, whether it's powers of government, whether it's armies in the Middle East or war, whatever it might be, we are more than conquerors. Hooper or hyper Nikon, more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that's Jesus Christ, our Lord. So how do you know? How do you know if you are overcoming? You know, God may or may not change our circumstances. He may not change our attitudes. He may not correct our situation. So how do you, how do you know? Our Father has granted us the overwhelming victory through Christ. And really, that's the message of, of Revelation. One writer put it this way. We're chained to the chariot. We're captive to our conquering hero, whom we have accepted as king and lord over every area of our lives. His responsibility is to lead us, and our responsibility is to stay behind his chariot, connected to the power and authority of the Lord. I had a little thing that I did with one of my sons uh, when he was very, very young. I would say, what do you know? And he would say that you're my dad and I'm your son. And in whatever the situation, however complex or complicated what we go through might be, I always think of that. I can always say to our heavenly father, you're my dad and I'm your child. And that is enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a reason that you take us through difficult situations. And and really, they're just inevitable in the course of life. I mean, who are we to say that we're immune from things? And yet it is so easy to focus on things other than you. We just want to get out of it. But Father, you're there to lead us every step of the way, whatever it is we're dealing with. Father, help us to gain that victory by living in surrender to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.